Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Thanks to everyone who's been commenting on all of the content that we've put out recently. I'm glad that you're all enjoying the episodes. There's going to be some exciting news soon about a new, live, interactive development from the Folklore Podcast. Please make sure that you follow our Facebook page or Twitter feed to hear about that as soon as we release the news. There has been more additional content added to the Patreon feed recently, with more coming soon, as well as some advanced notice of other developments which will be released there first. You can sign up from as little as a dollar a month, and not only ensure that you get access to all of the exclusive content at your support level, but also know that you are helping to keep the Folklore Podcast both viable and commercial free. I am still turning down offers of advertising on the podcast because you tell me that you prefer the show without it, and it is the support on Patreon which allows me to do this. Patreon support is also directly allowing the development of the new project which I'll be announcing soon. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast. If you are familiar with the term Vesen and you aren't from Sweden, then it is likely that you became aware of the term through the American drama series Grimm. This fantasy show suggested that many of the people with whom we share our lives may not be human at all, but may secretly be able to transform into a range of folkloric creatures or monsters, which the show calls Vesen. Vesen is, in fact, a Swedish term for a range of folkloric creatures, Joining me on this episode of the podcast to discuss his research into them is Swedish illustrator and author Johan Egerkrantz. His book, Vesen, published in 2019, is a wonderful bestiary of the spirits and monsters of Scandinavian folklore, and is soon being released as a role-playing game as well. I chatted with Johan recently about both of these things. Hello everyone and welcome to the Folklore Podcast and to uh, a, a new experiment for us. So if you are a Patreon supporter of the podcast, then I'm hoping if all of this has gone according to plan and technology does not fail us, uh, that you will be able to see us as well as listening to us. If you're listening on the normal podcast feed, of course, then hello, here we are in the world of audio. And joining me on the Folklore Podcast today is Swedish illustrator Johan Egerkrantz, who's going to talk a little bit about his work with um, folklore and illustration. Uh, we're going to focus particularly on one of his bodies of work, that of Vesen, and I shall come to that in a moment. But first, Johan, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be illustrating all of this lovely Swedish and other folklore? Uh, Certainly. Uh, Hello, (laughs) I'm Johan. Well, I um, and thanks for having me on the show, I should say. Um, I've been illustrated for all my life. This sounds like like the the bio uh, on the the homepage for for my publisher, but but, but I've, I've been sort of, I've been drawing all my life. Uh, and at an early age, I discovered role-playing games, uh, of which we will we'll get back to those in a while, I think. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, but but, but I, from, from a, as a child, I, I was really into 
mythology and folklore and all that stuff. Uh, and, it's, and, and that just became, that, that was just fueled further by the role-playing games because you had elves and goblins and all that stuff popping up. And in the Swedish role-playing games I played, they used the sort of the Swedish terms for, instead of goblins, they were vettar and so on. So you, you had a sort of folkloric aspect to it. And uh, so I became a bit interested in where those creatures came from originally. And when I was about 15 or 16, I started working professionally as an illustrator, doing a, a comic for a local newspaper. And then it sort of snowballed from there. Uh, and I met some guys who did a role-playing game called Gemini, and we published that in... What was it? I was like 19 or 20, I think. So that was in yeah, early 2000s, late, 1999, I think, or 1998. Um, and then I, from, from that on, I've been, I've been working as a concept illustrator. So I worked as a concept illustrator for, for computer games. And uh, after a while, that went bankrupt, as computer games companies are wont to do. And I became a free, free, freelance illustrator, so I did a lot of freelance work for yeah, children's books and all that kind of stuff. And after a while, my publisher wanted me to write my own book. And she sort of pushed me. She, I think she had imagined that I, I'd do some sort of, yeah, something along, along the lines of Harry Potter or something like that, because that was the, the rage back then. It's still the rage, but, 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 but even more back then. Uh, and I felt that I, I didn't want to do another sort of cr- crappy <laughs> or semi-crappy <laughs> fictional book based on I want to be as, as another, you know, no, me, me too as another uh, connotation, but, but I mean, a me too product uh, based on that sort of wave, initial wave of uh, young adult stuff. Um, so I, didn't want, I, I wanted to do something else. And, uh, and one of my favorite books has always been Fairies by Brian Froud and Alan Lee. Uh, and we started talking about that one. And about the same time, the Spider Week books had been out for a while, but they released uh, the best cherry. Uh, yes. They did like a, a really nice illustrated uh, Encyclopedia of all the all the all the fairy tale creatures, very much inspired by fairies as well. I mean, Tony Dittlitzi is obviously in very inspired by by Brian Froud and Annalise's work. As am I. Um, so we started thinking about that, and what, what if we did that in like a Swedish context, just sort of port, ported it to Swedish uh, and did it my style and did it in a Nordic style, because that really hadn't been done. And obviously, building a lot on, on the visuals of Jan Bauer, the famous Swedish uh, folklore and troll illustrator, so to speak. Um, so it, it's just a huge amount of influences that came together, and that became my first. So that was the first book I, I wrote and illustrated myself. So up, up, up until that point, I only illustrated stuff for other people. But that, that's when I became a, a writer, so to speak. And, and we released it, and it went rather well. 
So then I <laughs> started doing stuff in that vein. So from then on, I've, I've been doing my own sort of special blend of, uh, I don't know, it's sort of nicely illustrated pop science books, basically. Mm, I, I think uh, Brian Froud's influence, certainly, and those others does show through in, in your work as well. You also have a very, very distinctive style, which I think lends itself really well to this to this genre. I have got a couple of your books um, in front of me, one, one of which is The Undead, um, which uh, is, a, is a really interesting collection of, of different folkloric creatures um, for, from all over the world, I guess, as well. Um, did, how long do you spend researching before you decide on how to illustrate any of these creatures? Uh, each book takes about two years to do. Uh, in the case of Norse gods, I think it took me three years because I had <laughs> I, I just couldn't. Uh, I had such a, what's it called? I just felt such a pressure to to get it right. And it, it was the big, you know, the the the, the, the hard second album. You know, all, yes. uh, if 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 Lesson is my sort of first initial punk album, punk, punk rock album, <laughs> and then the, the Norse gods book is the um, the pretentious concept album, <laughs> <laughs> pretentious concept prog rock album, um, and uh, but but no, they take about yeah two years. Usually, I do research for half a year, then I start uh, sketching and and doing whatever pops into my head uh, for a while, and then I at the same time I do other stuff as well. So, so it's not like I work full-time with, with one of these books. And then when it's about half a year left until the deadline, <laughs> I try to keep my deadlines. I push them back sometimes, but, but I'm not like Douglas Adams. <laughs> I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they go by. I, I try to refrain from that. But, but once I get start getting close to the deadline, I, I start... Uh, I have to write it. I don't like to write, <laughs> but but uh, then I sort of get cracking and 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 write the the, the the whole thing. And at that point, I got perhaps thirty percent of the illustrations done. But I but at that point, I've sort of I've, I've laid the groundwork for what for the style of the book and, and the feel for the book. So then it's quite easy for me to just sort of bash out the, the final 70% of the illustrations. That, can, which, that process can be rather quick, actually. I, did, I think I did, yeah, I think I did all the illustrations for the Undead in like four months or something, or three months. That, that, so is, that is pretty... But pretty once quick. I get going, I, yeah, once I get going, I, I work pretty quickly. But, but, uh, but I need to sort of and it, it needs to, to marinate for, for two years or something like that before I yeah. can get cracking. Yes, and once you've done that research, I suppose, then you, you as, as you're doing the research and the writing, you're building up a fairly good kind of visual image in your head as to how you want to lay things out, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it becomes more and more... I just know how to do it. And, and once I know that, it's much easier, but, but you need that sort of... Yeah, you need need to go. You need to ponder it for a bit before it sort of. And then it's quite easy, and especially then when you have to do it, when when 
when you, I need a short amount of time to get stuff done because then yeah. I just do it and reflect it. But until that point, I'm not very effective. <laughs> I think perhaps that some people may recognize that. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure. Now, today uh, I'd like to concentrate on Vason, um, which, which I think you described as your punk album, if you're going to use the <laughs> analogy of, uh, of albums against books. Um, can you just explain a little bit about um, the Scandinavian folklore that make up Vason and what Vason are, for those that don't know the term? Well, Vesen uh, is a Swedish word that's roughly translated would be being in English. Yeah. Uh, so it's, and it's got several connotations, but we usually use it for something, a creature, usually with a sort of intelligence. Not necessarily, but but but, it, but it's similar to creature, but it's got this more sort of a spiritual um, part, uh, sort of a spiritual thing to it. Um, uh, I, th I think it, uh, and 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 we you always use it for this sort of fairy tale or folkloric type of creatures. We, we use the word vassan, and the thing with vassan, the word. It's quite poetic as well, as because vasen also means essence in Swedish. Uh, so you can talk about a, a thing's vasen is its essence, you know, the, the the core of the poodle, so to speak. Yes. Um, so it's got that sort of yeah. It's got a it's a really multifaceted word, and it, it, it's got a it's got lots of different sort of connotations. So it's yes. a it's a really nice it's a nice word. Uh, but basically, it means being, uh, and we use that to, yeah, as a collective noun for. If you talk about the spirit or something like that, you you, you always call it call it a vessel. But, uh, but but it's got a sort of air of mystery to it that I. That I yeah, and I think you say, don't you, in the introduction to the book that um, the, these are the kinds of creatures that um, legend tells us live amongst us but only make themselves known to us if they choose to do so is that right yeah well yeah i mean in in that in that respect i mean they're very similar to all folkloric beings in all in all cultures i mean they really there's nothing there's nothing that really sets them apart from from english folkloric beings or or German for other Germanic folkloric beings, they're, they're, they're quite similar. It's just it's just our word for them. Uh, you, I mean, in, in in a way, it's similar to it's a sort of catch-all phrase in the same as uh, in in Japan they talk about yokai. Yes. I mean, don't I mean I, I'm probably mangling the pronunciation of that one, but yokai. I mean, that could be a ghost, or that could be a monster, or that could be a, anything. And I think Vassen is really a similar term to to yokai. But but uh, they are quite similar to other folkloric beings. I mean, the, the, there's there's not that a huge difference between a, a Swedish tonte and a brownie or something like that, uh, or a beckerhest to a kelpie. But it's it's a ba basic basic concepts pop up all over Europe and all, all over the world as well. Which yes, is there are, really there are what I like. Them. 
there are lots of them, aren't there, that have very, very similar roots. I mean, just scanning through the contents of the book, for example, which you divide up into um, nature spirits and familiars, um, shapeshifters, ghosts and monsters, for example. There are lots of things here that, that really um, would be very familiar to a lot of people. So you talk through fairies and gnomes, for example, uh, trolls, mermaids, uh, werewolves, revenants, these sorts of things. But there are, there are others, aren't there, that are, that are more peculiar to Sweden. Can you pick any out that are particularly Swedish examples? Well, I think one of the most classic ones, of course, is the the tomte, the the, the classic Swedish or Norse tomte or nisse or what, what have you, which is yeah. a sort of uh, caretaker spirit for for a farm, the farm gnome. Yes. Uh, which incidentally lent it, lent its name to the Swedish version of Santa Claus, which is always a bit confusing because he's called the Tomte, but it's a very different sort of character. But uh, these guys, they, they look like, yes, small, grumpy old men. My, my version is particularly grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, they, they were often seen as the, the they, they have some similarities to ancestral spirits. So some, some people thought they were the the, the guy who actually built uh, a homestead initially, the the founder of the farm, the, the originator of the farm, uh, he lived on as the tomte and took care of the took care care of the farmstead for for the coming generations. So you really, have, but 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 he cared more about the farm than the actual people who was occupying the farm at the at the particular time. He had a I mean, as he was sort of an immortal ghost, he, he had a sort of slightly different view of the time and uh, what was important. So, so you really had to uh, you had to treat him with a lot of respect, and you had to treat the farm with a lot of respect. So, there's a lot of uh, lot of stories about uh, farm hands, lazy farm hands that get sort of beaten up by by the by the gnome, by the tomte. Yes, and it's often the case that you have to leave kind of offerings for them, isn't it, as well, those sorts of yes, things. And then yeah. they, they will help you happily, but if you neglect them, then they will turn into a different creature, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not, not in, I mean, it's not like the, the what, what is it, is the hob that, or the brown that turns into a hob, or what? What? Yes, I don't know. Yeah, uh, depending depending on the area, hops yeah. or brownies. Yes. Yeah. He he, ne- he never he never turns into another type of creature. He's just if you treat him well, he he'll be nice to you. And I mean, one one of my favorite stories is, uh, I mean that that's where we we have this sort of thing about the Christmas porridge that you leave on the doorstep for the for the for the tomte yes. on Christmas Eve. That's a classic tradition. And some people still do that, actually. Uh, but there's a classic tale where, where the farm people leave, leave the porridge and you're supposed to uh, have a glob of, um, of butter in it and, or honey. But in this particular tale, it's, it's butter. Uh, and the porridges are hot, so the butter melts and pools on the, on the, yeah, below the, the porridge. Yes. 
Uh, and the gnome comes up to it and becomes enraged because, what, what? no butter? Bastard. So he goes out and breaks the neck of the largest, <laughs> of the best cow in the, um, in the barn or whatever you keep cows. Uh, and then he comes back and eats the porridge anyway because he's hungry. And I mean, keep in mind, this is a pretty small creature, basically the size of a smurf or something like that. So yes, it's yeah. quite impressive to, to wring the neck of a cow. Uh, anyway, then he discovers that the, the, the butter has pulled on the, yeah, uh, on the, on the bottom of the, yeah. of the pot. So he becomes really regretful. And then he, so he sort of takes the dead cow on his back and walks away to, um, to the neighbors and leaves the cow there and takes their best cow and sort of brings it back to the farmstead. So it's all nice and well for, for the people actually has the farm, but for the neighbors, they sort of suffer for it. So it's one of those creatures that call a dragväsen in Swedish, like a, a pull creature that they, they pulled riches to a particular place. And that's sort of a common thing, like, like a familiar, basically. Uh, so that's one of the classic ones. Uh, one of my personal favorites is uh, it's a ghost, a revenant of a kind called uh, Night Raven, or not drum. Uh, that's one of my favorite, basically, partly because I really like ravens. Uh, but it but it takes the it's a it's a ghost that takes the shape of a raven. Uh, and uh, attacks people at night, and it's also, I think it was it was now actually, <laughs> I, the problem is I forget all this stuff because I do one of these books and it's like it's like writing a paper or something. You 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 write it and then you sort of when when, when you were studying when when you were studying for an exam, you you read up on it and you had everything in your head and then you do the and then they did the exam and everything. So and then that's it. Yeah. Falls away. And it's a bit like this with these books that, uh, but I, I, I accumulate all this knowledge and then I sort of pour it out when I write it and then I forget all about it. But um, anyway, um, but, but The Night Raven, it was uh, suicides or, or people of low character that got buried outside the churchyard. So they were buried in non-consecrated ground. Uh, and some of them became ravens when, as, as, as ghosts. And they had to, they were doomed to try to fly towards uh, Christ's grave every night. So every night they, they flew eastwards and then they had to go and hide under the ground and then they continued that trek. But they never got there. They're a bit like... It's like it's like a perpetual judgment, a bit like Sisyphus or something in Greek mythology. That, that, that yes. there's something that they have to do perpetually, that then then they, they can never get, they can never reach their goals. That's a sort of yes. It's wistful. kind of it's like the ultimate punishment, isn't it? It's quite it's, yeah. it's quite a common kind of folklore trope. I think this idea of giving being given. We've talked about it before. In fact, being given an impossible task to do as retribution perhaps for something bad that you did in life i mean you say on the i've got a particular page of the book is here the night raven and um you say in there as well about them also perhaps being the the restless soul of a criminal for example so that's somebody who's being judged afterwards for what they did in life yeah 
Exactly. But it's quite strange because, I mean, it's not that far to Jerusalem. No, no, that's true, but perhaps not in one night. I mean, a raven could make that trick in a few months, probably. So, I mean, yes, yeah. Or weeks. I, suppose <laughs> so I, don't, they, I don't know why they never... But... I suppose it's if they have to return, if they have to do it in one night and then return at the end of the night, then that's what makes it the impossible task, I suppose. Yeah, perhaps they return to the original, yeah, something like that. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's not quite clear. But, um, yeah. Another one that strikes me, I think, about <clears throat> of being particularly... Um, related to Sweden um, is the um, Hell Sow. Yeah, the Glosson. The Glosson, yes. Now that, that's something yeah. that I don't think we find necessarily in very many other places. You have the term Razorback as a name for, for wild boars in Australia, I think. I mean, there's a brilliant movie by what's it called? The guy who, who directed Highlander did this wonderful creature feature called Razorback oh, in the early yes. 80s. Uh, and, I mean, that's a big, really evil pig. And, and the, the Gluson, the Hell Sow, has got that sort of Razorback quality. They have, they have bristles on the back that are sharp as knives, basically. So they, they kill people by running between the legs and they sort of gut them. So that's quite uh, visceral. Also connected as well to um, <clears throat> to the to the year walk, which is a divinatory ritual, isn't it, in Sweden? That I know uh, a folklore colleague of mine, Tommy Kusuela, who who um, work, works in Uppsala, um, ha, has done a very extensive study of of the year walk, and and the Glosen comes up in that as as being one of those creatures that try to attack you and put you off your path as you're undertaking the ritual. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's one of them. Uh, it's, 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 I think it's generally sort of the main, the main antagonist for the person trying to do the year walk. And, and yeah, the year walk was, a, like you say, a, a ritual that you did. It differs when you did it. Something, sometimes it's on New Year's Eve, sometimes it's on Christmas Day Eve, I think. Uh, that, that actual the time when you did it sort of differs between different and, and, uh, but, 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 but basically you walked around, you should visit a number of churches and walk around them. And then when you reach the, and at this, when, when you did this ritual, uh, like you say, uh, supernatural creatures would attack you and try to lead you off your path. But if you, but if you did this final trek, you had to walk three times through around one church and then go to another and walk three times around that. And sometimes it's seven churches, sometimes it's five churches, sometimes it all, it all differs a bit. But when you, re- when you reach the final church, you look, you look through the keyhole of the church and then you would see the future, you would see the coming year, some sort of, have a, some sort of vision of uh, what, what was com- coming. Uh, and that's a really strange Thing. I mean, I, I don't recognise that from any other. No, I think I think that is a particularly Swedish uh, yeah. Swedish ritual, as far as I yeah. know. I, I don't think I've come across it anywhere else uh, either. But it is it is a fascinating a fascinating ritual. The only thing that reminds me of it is this: this I think it's a Irish story that Mike Mignola based a Hellboy story on, when the main protagonist has to carry a 
a ghost or actually a, uh, the body of a ghost to different churchyards and yeah. all the churchyards the, all, all, the, all, all the souls on the churchyards sort of scream well, yeah, we're full, we're full, we're full and it, everybody has to find a resting place for, for, this, for this corpse be- yeah. before sunset or something like that or, sun, or sundown sun, uh, sun. Well, before the sun comes up I think, before sunrise and that's sort of a that's sort of it's got some similar themes as yeah. New York, but, but it's more of a more of a fairy tale. Yes, maybe may, maybe very loosely based on it, perhaps. And I, and I suppose when you when you're talking about films and and TV as well, the, if you're going to consider the Vesen, then I suppose um, what would come to mind for a lot of people is is um, the the American serialized uh, drama Grimm. Which obviously drew on um, <laughs> drew on the folklore of of the the Vesson for its characters, but but perhaps um, perhaps maybe we should say very loosely based again. I did name the book Vesson after the show because I felt it was familiar enough to actually because because the first working titles were like. Fairy creatures of the north, or something like that. How, how do you translate late Basin into into English? And then we sort of, after a while, we sort of tested different different titles, and in the end, we just oh, we, we just call it Basin because people who are interested in this book will probably have seen the Green Show, and then they call them Basin. So I mean, it, it probably that, that title. Well, the, the show was very popular, wasn't it? And it ran for yeah, what five seasons, I think. Uh, and five and six was seasons. yeah, I mean, it ran for a long time, and it, and it was, let's face it, quite entertaining in in many ways. But but as somebody who as somebody who knows a bit more about as somebody who knows a bit more about the background behind the characters or the monsters of Vesson, um, what did you think of it? Well, that's the thing. You always have your own view or vision of, of, of what the correct version of a, of a, of a creature is or a, or a tale is or a legend is. Uh, but the thing is, they're really inconsistent in themselves. So, I mean, it's really easy to, to slack off a show like Grimm and say, no, that's not what they were like. But, but, but the folklore itself is so inconsistent. So it, there is no proper way. I mean, obviously, what, what I put forth in in, uh, in Vassen is my view of what I think they were like, or at least my, my vision of them. Um, but, but that's just my vision. I mean, I, I think I portray it in a way that people find plausible or whatever you, you think. I mean, it sort of feels right but, but yeah. to me and to apparently to many people. But but that's just an interpretation. It's just it's not it, Grimm is just like it's just such a as a valid interpretation as as any. I mean, I like to do a, a similar thing is uh, another book I made, Norse Gods, about the Norse gods. Yeah. Uh, I mean that differs. That's my vision of them. That doesn't mean the Thor, the Marvel Thor movies are wrong. That's just another interpretation of these stories. I mean, I keep a bit closer to, to Snorre, Sturluson and the Eddas, but it's still, 
the, the Thor films are a valid interpretation of the mythology because they are inconsistent and we have no idea. We just have the Eddas to go by. They were written several hundred years after people stopped believing in the gods. So, I mean, we have no idea what the actual Vikings or, or medieval Scandinavians actually believed but, but, or, or what they believed in Germany back in... Because these, these, the gods are quite old. So, I mean, the first, the first people who believed in them probably lived in, like, the 4th or 3rd century or something like that. And, I mean, they're, they're, they're really... I mean, there's, everything is open to interpretation and there's no correct, there's no correct interpretation, basically. Uh, uh, sorry, very long-winded discussion, but, but, but no, I, I, I kind of like Grimm. I, I think, obviously, my view of what these creatures are often differs from their take on it. And, and it's the same with Supernatural or any other of these shows. I mean, Grimm owes a lot to the supernatural, I think. Yes, yes. And of course, at the end of the day, all these shows are is a bit of light entertainment, isn't it? And, and you know, I, I think any any representation of folklore in the media and those sorts of ways can ultimately only be a good thing because it keeps people interested in the subject. Yeah. And then you can look up, yeah, basically, like with my role-playing games, when I got interested in this stuff, you've got some, some nuggets of information that makes you sort of curious and then you start researching for yourself. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's an area that I'd, um, I'd, I'd like for us to, to finish up with, if we, if we may, is the role-playing game aspect. Now, this is an area that we've started to explore on the podcast, looking at the ways that role-playing games and folklore tie together, because folklore um, very naturally lends itself to the kind of sphere of role-playing because of the fantasy element that naturally the creatures such as in Vesson, for example. Um, so there are, and also I think the other aspect of it is of course that um, role-playing games are all about storytelling ultimately. You take away the mechanics of rolling dice and those sorts of things, you're left with an extended session of storytelling, which is how all folklore was transmitted and how many uh, legends and and other pieces of folklore were ultimately created in the first place. Um, so Vesson has been picked up as a as a suitable uh, theme for role playing recently. Um, Free League, I think, over in Sweden, who produce role playing games, um, uh, have have picked this up. I think they've 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 looked at other franchises as well, haven't they? Uh, with sort of very rich for storytelling. Uh, I still need to play the Alien uh, game, but that looks very appealing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but t- tell us a little bit about how how Vesson went from this this paper format I- into becoming a role playing game. Uh, yeah, I mean it's funny, isn't it? Because like like I said, my my I sort of became interested in all this stuff because of role-playing games and now <laughs> that's in itself becomes a role-playing game so it's sort of it's gone full circle in a way but uh no the book came out in 2013 and i think i started having discussions with the guys at free league uh just the year after or two years after so it, it, basically just soon after it came out we started having discussions about this could be a really cool role-playing game um, 
Ikubokas wrote that game. And at, at the time they were doing, they had done some stuff. They had, they had done the first edition of uh, a classic Swedish role-playing game called Mutant. Uh, that, that's sort of a science fiction, post-apocalyptic role-playing game. And, and, uh, but then we, we, we had discussions about doing something. And it, it, it really inspired by yeah, doing a sort of classic gothic horror role-playing game similar to Chill or Call Cthulhu. Um, a lot of, you know, Victorian person with a lantern standing on a graveyard and looking, <laughs> looking at something behind him, sort of kind of, kind of thing, uh, with mist, you know. A lot, lot of that's that we, we, we wanted, we wanted that, but, but we thought, but, but this sort of Swedish or Norse or Scandinavian, um, folkloric stuff could, could be an extra spice into in, 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 in a, that kind of horror game. So it's basically we, we always. I mean, the working title was there's a Swedish version of Chill called Hawk. So we called it Troll Hawk. That that was really the the work the working that that, that, that sort of formulated the intention of it. Uh, but but yeah, no no, it's coming out in a few weeks, I think, or a few months. It's coming out the summer, I think. I mean, everything's sort of jumbled up now because of Corona and all that yes, stuff. Cool. But, 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 uh, but, but it, like, like you say, it really lends itself well to, to role-playing games because, and, and I think it could be a really, it will be a really interesting uh, game because we, we really try to keep the, the creatures, the vast and mysterious so they're, they're not like you don't get stats for them. It's not like you're attacked by two D6 goblins. It's not like mm-hmm. that. It's much more eerie and, and uh, they're, they're much more of a force that, that you have to uh, appease or, or fight. Or, but but you, you can attack them in different ways or you, you, can, you can solve the problem in different ways. And they're, they're not evil as such. No, I have to say, actually, I have to say, it's a, it, it is a really atmospheric game. So we've been playing it uh, for a little while because uh, a friend of mine over in Germany, um, who we we've worked together on a few uh, podcast-based role-playing things for recently, um, he supported the project a little while ago. So he has the advanced materials. So he's been running a game for us not as a recorded project, but just as a a little diversion in the evenings to try it out. Um, And it is really, really atmospheric. And and the reason that I like it so much as well is because, again, um, it doesn't rely on the whole mechanics of having to look up rules for doing something magical and rolling a whole bunch of dice and that sort of thing. It's about telling a story and you develop the story through through that kind of gaming environment. And it, it does work really, really well. Yeah, it's a, they have a fantastic mechanics, and Vassen uh, is based on the same. You still it's a role playing game, so you need mechanics, but but it's based on the same uh, system as Tate from the Loop, uh, the, the role playing game they made based on Simon Stollenhardt's illustrations, uh, and that's it's very geared towards storytelling, and the only the only ones you don't have stats for the 
for the enemies or the, 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 the non-player characters, but you, it's only the, the main characters that roll the dice, so it's always you against sort of the world uh, in a much more, in a very profound way, um, which differs a bit from most other role-playing games where you have, when you can sort of look up if you have the character, if yeah, you have like the Dungeons and Dragons guide to gods and monsters or whatever it's mm. called, and then you can look up Cthulhu or or Thor or whatever, and yeah, he says he's got three hundred strength and <laughs> fifty thousand hit points, and, but then they become it, it, it lessens them uh, in a way, and we want we didn't want that. We wanted to keep them mysterious. I mean, it's just uh, that they, they shouldn't have. They they should be intangible in a way and, yeah. and mysterious. Yeah, I think that's what makes it far more successful. Is 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 just being able to to tell and develop a story without having to worry about stopping and and looking things up. So, what what do you think it yeah. is about folklore? It, it also makes them more. It, Go on. So, sorry, but but it also makes them more scary because if you can't pin something down. Then it's much more scary than when you can pin it down. So it becomes, it's really effective in a horror setting as well. So what do you think it is about about folklore and and myth and those sorts of things that make them particularly effective in an environment like fantasy and role playing, for example? Well, I mean, I think I think you answered that question. I mean, it is storytelling. I mean, that that that's really what it is. Uh, it it is the new way of uh, sitting around the campfire and sort of, and that, that that's the fun when when you read uh, when you read your written of folkloric tales, you you really can sort of sometimes in in, in Sweden they were really good at uh, in the eighteen hundreds and late 1700s they, and early 1900s, they, they traveled around and collected all these stories, uh, like inspired by the Brothers Grimm. And you can, you, you can, you can hear it in the, in the, in the, cause they really recorded exactly what people were saying. You, you can, you can sort of, you get the feel that these are stories that have been traded over and over again. And they always add their own little flourishes and they, you know, Add their own little jokes or, or humorous elements, and it's a very—it's a living, um, it's a very living storytelling in a way. And I mean that—that's what you do when you when you role play, and, and that and fantasy is about coming up with new cool stuff and sort of, and also adding on an existing um, uh, mass of. of Cliches and characters, and uh, it's a bit like comedia de art or something like mm. that. That you have these sort of archetypical characters, and then you can do new stuff with them. That's a really interesting point, actually, isn't it? Because that—that's how folklore and stories tend to change and develop. Is—is—is is, is by you know adding to them uh, and changing what you know about them, and that you know the oral transmission of storytelling has naturally done that for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and by using this kind of gaming environment, you are essentially creating, you know, modern versions or alternative versions of, of those older stories or creatures. Yeah, yeah. And and as usual, with with your own, you have the point of view of a person living in 2020, which makes makes you sort of 
question the archetypes in a way a person living in 2020 only could, yeah. which is different from how you would view a certain character in the 1800s and in the early 1900s. So you... Um, so, so was your involvement in the development of the role-playing game more than just supplying the visuals? Did you also have uh, input into the design of the uh, storytelling angle as well, for example, based off your research? Yeah, I, I was involved. I mean, I, I, as an old role-player, I, I, mean, I was really interested in how the product came out, so, so to speak. So I, I just, it's not just about providing... Uh, Providing illustrations, so uh, no, I, I, I read I read the different drafts and came comments and, and so on. At the end of the day, it's not it's I haven't written it. I mean, it's not mine. It's Nils Hintze, Nils Hintze who's written it, and it's his work, so to speak. But 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 I but I did really. I, I had a during the whole process. I, I had a, a discussion, an open discussion with with Free League uh, about stuff <laughs> and, and, and I had a lot of comments about yeah just trying to tweak it so it sort of it matched my vision of it a bit more and when, when something was didn't really sort of went off to in a, in another direction I, I, I tried to at least find some sort of balance between my, my vision and their vision and so on so I mean but, but I was really and I think we it really worked. I mean, and it, it also became, they had ideas that I never would have thought of. So, so I mean, it's become a richer, more interesting world than I could have imagined, I think. And and the whole world itself is, is very rich and fascinating. And I, and I would encourage people to explore it. So as Johan says, the um, role-playing game version of Vessen comes out, hopefully, uh, sometime towards the summer and is, is definitely worth uh, having a look at. Um, I would really, really encourage people to, to have a look because um, your work, Johan, is obviously visual as an illustrator and we're talking very much in a kind of audio capacity here. Um, but I would really encourage people to, to have a look at what you produce because it is such, such a rich interpretation of the folklore and, and really, you know, is deserving of being looked at in more detail. Where should people go online to uh, have a look at some of your work? Uh, they can follow me on Facebooks, uh, Johan Egerkrans Illustrator. Uh, you can put that in the show notes because Indeed. people come <laughs> probably can't uh, spell Johan Egerkrans. Um, and then I got a blog as well that I rarely update. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Johan Egerkrans Illustrator as well. Um, for the books, if you live in Sweden, you can buy all the books here because they are mostly Swedish books. Uh, but they've been translated into a lot of languages. They're coming out in Germany now. We have wow books are uh, publishing them. And they're out in Denmark and Finland and so on. And of the, the main, my major three books have been... They're, they're Swedish, Swedish versions, but, but they are translated into English. So you can buy them in English from Greenfrost. Uh, which is an online uh, purveyor of sort of Viking theme stuff, but but they also sell my books. So there you can order them all over the world. 
So wherever you live, you can you can order them from them. So that's greenfrost.com. Fantastic. I will put links on the Folklore Podcast website and in the show notes for this episode for people to come and follow your work and to hopefully uh, get hold of copies of, of Vessen or, or your other books. Uh, I would highly recommend them both because they are visually very very attractive to look at uh but also because the actual research and the folklore is is really interesting too um johan thank you so much for taking time out on your sunday afternoon for joining us on the podcast and i hope that you've uh, covered everything that you would thank like you very to talk much about. thanks for having me yeah it's been a pleasure thank you my thanks to johan for joining me via the inevitable zoom meeting to discuss his work do take a look online at some of his illustrations as they are exquisite renderings of some of these folkloric creatures from Sweden. Do also email the podcast if you would like to suggest any themes for future episodes, or people that you would like to hear in interview, and we'll take up as much as possible in the coming months. Thanks for listening. Look after yourselves, and see you next time. <laughs>